I'm pretty sure we've said smoking hole more times than we've ever said on the, this podcast, <laughs> just for the record. Just saying. Well, um, you know. It's getting a lot of play today. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restored All Podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me my Bangra dance consultant, Prasanna Maliandi. How's it going, Prasanna? I'm good, Curtis, but I have to warn you, I am not a dancer at all, so probably the wrong person to be seeking advice about dancing you just, from. But you said that you knew about Bangra dancing and that you could advise well, me on these things. Well, I told you that it's like a Indian... <laughs> dance style if you will and you had asked the question of have i seen it because i've been, i've seen a bunch of bollywood movies you expand my horizon so i bought my tickets uh my wife and i will be going to see the show it's called banging it and it's it's banging banging spelled with bh mm. so it's like it's trying to like you know do an homage to the bong bongra um so it's a uh, new musical at the La Jolla Playhouse, which is a very nice uh, playhouse that I've actually never been. I've lived here twenty something years. I've never watched a show there, but a lot, a what? lot of like big what? Broadway shows actually start out. I've never started. I've, I've I've always wow. watched the Broadway shows after Can they've like, gone you know, to Broadway. This is the kind of show that could possibly hit big on Broadway, and so we'll yeah. see it. You know, and and uh, we'll see if it's any good. You know, I'll, I'll come back later with my review. Yes. <laughs> I think our listeners will be curious. And by the way, yeah, for those in San be... Diego, when is it running from? Do you know how long? But it's running it's running till April. Okay. So, so it might. San Diego. Yeah. 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 Depending on when this goes live, <laughs> if it goes live <laughs> less than a month from now, then you have like two days left to go see it <laughs> because it runs until April 17th at the La Jolla Playhouse, by which time all the tickets will be gone and you won't be able to see it. So, <laughs> sorry. I don't know what to tell you. But um, so we we have a, a longtime friend on the podcast here today, Persona. I'm excited to bring him on. I, I And not just because he's one of those people that make me feel young. Um, <laughs> he has, has been in the IT industry for an awfully long time. Makes me feel like a young whippersnapper sometimes. He is now the technologist extraordinary and plenipotentiary at Vast Data. Welcome to the podcast, Howard Marks. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Uh, I was always a Bob Fosse guy, so I don't know much about Indian dance. <laughs> Curtis didn't either before he met me, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I, my knowledge of of Indian dance, you know, basically includes uh, the reference to it in, uh, what was that movie? Uh, Not Millionaire? The Bright, no, The the Bride and Prejudice. The, oh. There's a, there's. Yeah, I, th I think it's. There's a, it's a Pride it, and Prejudice. Yeah. It, like knockoff. Yeah. Right. Done with, what's her name? Aishwarya um, Rai, I think. She remember she she in the movie she she gives two two dance moves. It was petting the dog and screwing in the light bulb. I don't know if you remember that. She says that in the movie. Uh, that's literally the extent of my knowledge of Indian dance. Well, that and the fact that I've watched a bunch of Bollywood movies, but that's all thanks to Persona. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you never know what you're going to get when you're listening to the Backup Central Restore It All podcast. Speaking of which, let me throw out our usual disclaimer. Prasanna and I work for different companies. Prasanna works for Zoom. I work for Druva. This is not a podcast of either company. And the opinions that you hear are ours. And uh, be sure to rate this podcast at ratethispodcast.com slash restore. Or just go at your, you know, on your favorite podcatcher, you know, like uh, Apple Podcasts. And just scroll down to the bottom and, and give us some stars. And if you really want to make my Add day, comment. actually put some words there. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> And um, if you are interested in the things that we're interested in, like backups and storage and resilience and 
ransomware recovery and cyber warfare and all of these things, uh, then, then, you know, just send me a note at WC Preston on Twitter or W Curtis Preston at Gmail. And uh, I'll be happy to uh, get you on the podcast. We're friendly. Uh, even, we ask lots of questions. Even <laughs> we even uh, apparently, although last episode I said, unless your name was Stuart, and apparently Stuart has now reached out to you, Persona. Yes, he has. And, <laughs> he has. And... <laughs> he so has. even if your name so is even, Stuart. Even Stuart can get on this podcast. So if we're going to let, you know, a mouse <clears throat> on the podcast, then um, surely we can let you. His name is Stuart Little, for those of you that didn't get that reference. Anyway. Way to make me feel honored here. <laughs> <laughs> We literally let anybody in the door, <laughs> <laughs> including guys who always the- wear Hawaiian shirts. Um, you know, they're comfortable. They come in my size. And it's a beautiful at thing. At this point, I'm just known for them. I have been known yeah. to tell people I'm going to meet at the Starbucks at some conference. Um, just look for Santa Claus in an Aloha shirt. That will be me. <laughs> <laughs> That pretty much that pretty much narrows it That's, down. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, how many three hundred and fifty pound guys with a gray beard are there walking around the average tech show wearing an Aloha shirt? Two. I'm, I'm gonna at most. Yeah, two. Yeah, <laughs> at most, absolutely. And one of them is going to be you. So, yeah. so how long have you been at Vast Data? I've been no. at Vast Data uh, three years and fifteen days. Wow. Um, and the company's fairly new as well, right? Um, I that. joined Vastata the day before we came out of stealth. Um, my, my first official act at Vastata was a briefing for Chris Miller, um, followed <laughs> the next day by Storage Field Day. <laughs> wow. So, you know, nothing like starting off running. <laughs> right, right. Now, you know, I, I joined Vast from being an independent analyst, so there were a couple of right. weeks there where I was, you know, getting brought up to speed and such before my official start date. But yeah. And why don't you give, you know, for those that aren't familiar with Vast Data, give us a, you know, the the elevator sure. pitch the, and, and so on. The really short form on Vast Data is that we make very large scale, all flash file and object storage systems. And when I say very large scale, um, our average selling price for a cluster is well on the north side of a million dollars. It's multiple petabytes. Um, Today, we're just introducing a new storage enclosure that brings our building block down from 675 terabytes per HA enclosure to 338. So we're taking it down by a factor of two. We're going from a 2U to a 1U enclosure. We'll talk about that in a little bit. <clears throat> but the innovative thing about VAST is the architecture. If you talk about a large-scale system like we build, traditionally that's been done with a scale-out shared nothing model where you have a lot of x86 servers, each of those x86 servers owns some set of media and they communicate on a backend network and software makes it look like one big system. Um, But those systems start to break down at really large scale. And so we've come up with a new model we call DACE, the disaggregated shared everything architecture. Instead of having a field of peer nodes, each of which owns some media. We disaggregated the media into these HA enclosures that I was just talking about. So no single point of failure, 400 gig connections to an NVMe fabric. And that's typically 100 gig ethernet. Some of our HPC customers like to run InfiniBand, so we can do InfiniBand as well. All those enclosures do is hold data. There's no services there. All of the services, everything 
that you would think of as the controller function of the system runs in stateless Docker containers in the front end servers. So when a user makes a request to a protocol server, to one of those front end servers, could be NFS, could be SMB, could be S3, that server looks in the metadata that's stored in storage class memory in the enclosures, finds the data the user's requesting in the data in QLC flash in those same enclosures, retrieves it over the NVMe over fabrics fabric and delivers it to the user. So there's none of the traffic from node to node required to reassemble data. Everything's north, south across that NVMe over fabrics connection. And since the metadata is in storage class memory, it's fast enough to directly access by all of the front end servers that they can just share it. They don't have to cache it. And by not having the cache, we don't have all the complexities of keeping the cache coherent. I was just going to ask about that, Howard. So it looks like, though, you're sort of disaggregating the actual storage and metadata from sort of all the front end processing, which allows, I would assume, the front end to scale independently of the back end. Right. So each of those front end protocol servers mounts all of the SSDs in the cluster at boot time. And then it looks at all of those SSDs like they're local. And those are the SCM SSDs that hold the metadata and the QLC SSDs that hold the data. So everybody has access to everything. And instead of sending messages back and forth between the front end servers, they simply write a single version of truth in the shared metadata. So that the old, so that you can place a lock on the metadata or update the metadata, but you never have to tell everybody else you updated it because if they want to know what the state is, they'll go look in the one place where it's true. Yeah, and because everything so if, is stateless in the front end, you don't have to worry about that necessarily, and everyone always right. trusts that back end for consistency. Right. So the Pretty back awesome. end has both SSDs and QLCs. Well, it has SCM. So storage class oh. memory SSDs. Oh, okay. And okay. that can be Optane or Keoxia FL6s. Um, okay. And it has low-end QLC SSDs. So super fast, the, high speed. Yeah, the, the, the storage class memory is what's holding the metadata, and the QLCs is what's holding the data, right? Primarily. It's also used as a write buffer. Okay, okay. Um, so writes come into the storage class memory. Mm-hmm. and get mirrored to two different SCM SSDs and then get ACT. And then the migration from SCM to QLC happens after the ACT, so we have more time to do things like compress more fully. This is a very different game than, I mean, this idea of all of the front-end nodes being able to mount the entire uh, storage yes. in the background. Yeah, we, is... we eliminate the whole concept of ownership mm-hmm. and all the complexity that that creates. And now I'm going to blow your mind because when I say the metadata is in the SCM, I don't mean just the element store metadata, the metadata for our merged file system object store, but also the data reduction metadata. And so when you add another enclosure to the cluster, you add more SCM, which means you add more room for that metadata. So regardless of the size of the cluster, the cluster is one data reduction realm across tens or hundreds of petabytes. Because everything sort of looks like one cluster, if you will, or one system. Right. And and we don't have to hold the data deduplication hash table in memory any place. It's all in SCM where it's fast enough. We don't need that. So we don't have the limitations of how big a deduplication realm can be that most deduplication systems have. Right. They typically top out around, uh, you know, a petabyte or so. And then you can't get any bigger than that. I don't know where to start. I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) I don't, Curtis. You talk, talk, Prasanna. 
So from the from the backup point of view, we're discovering that the customers are starting to demand higher restore speeds. That traditionally all a customer worried about when they were picking the storage for their backups was, was it fast enough that I can make my backup within the window? Right. Um, right. And so we got systems like data domains and other disk-based deduplicating systems where there was a big write-read asymmetry where you could write data faster to them than you could read data from them because reading data that caused the system to rehydrate turned sequential IO into random IO and they had disk right. disks on the back end. And yeah. as disk drives have gotten bigger, this has gotten worse because a 20 terabyte disk drive today delivers exactly the same number of IOPS that a one terabyte disk drive delivered 10 years ago. So now 20 terabytes of data gets a 20th as many IOPS. And so you discover, yes, it takes me eight hours to back this up. It takes me 82 hours to restore it. And right. ransomware. Ddupe has never been very friendly for, for large restores, <laughs> especially if you're doing any sort of, if you want to do a live mount, forget it, right? From a Directly from a data domain. Um, right. There, it, and, it's possible, but, you know, in the same way, it's possible but that. That's, but that's, you, you know, can bring up the Oracle or the SQL Server VM so that the IT guys can access the passwords database, <laughs> not so that everybody can start act running yeah. ERP on it again. Don't use it as production. <laughs> right, that's a bad right. thing. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, and so, you know, we're discovering that, you know, people's requirements are, are getting tighter. Um, you know, you start thinking about uh, software as a service providers where, you know, if you run some account, some industry specific accounting as a service for a thousand customers, that's a thousand databases. And when something goes wrong, you want to restore those databases as fast as you can because your customers are going to be standing over your shoulder yelling at you. <laughs> And, you know, the last thing that kicked a couple of our potential customers over the edge is the ransomware threat. Because the size of the restore grows so much with ransomware. <clears throat> you know, you start off with, I need to protect my data against ransomware. I need various methods to do that. And so we have indestructible snapshots. So you can say, snapshot this folder at 6 a.m. when the backup window closes and retain it for 30 days. And even if the administrator wants to delete it, he can't. So I wanted to but, talk about that. Yes. Uh, so I did read a little small blurb about that. So what prevents, like, is that locked down forever? Like an admin can't delete it no matter what? Or is it just there are additional safeguards in place to make sure that someone doesn't compromise the admin password. Anyone who ever talked to any customer of EMC's Centera <laughs> knows that if you build a system where you literally can't delete data, someone will get themselves in trouble and fill it 100% <laughs> up with junk. And it will be a bad situation. So you have to provide some mechanism for overriding this because customers will paint themselves in corners. Um, as I said, our average selling price is well over a million dollars. We don't have small customers who we only know third hand through VARs. We are in relatively intimate contact with every one of our customers. And so we don't have a fixed policy that says, if you jump through these hoops, then we will let you delete the undeletable snapshots. We and the customer agree what the hoops are. You know, Multi-factor authentication must be three of the five people on this list. They have to know 
the pass phrase and the proper response to the pass phrase. And if they respond with this other response to the pass mm-hmm. phrase, then for the next 24 hours, do not give anybody the secret. Gotcha. Um, you know, as complicated mm-hmm. as you want, we'll, as long as we can write it down, those are the rules. And then once you've jumped through the hoops, we give you a time limited token that allows you to delete snapshots for a short period of time. And that token is a one-time pad so that you can't read. It's not yeah, good for forever. <clears throat> an, an hour whenever yeah. you use it. It is good for the time when we issue it for some limited period of time. And then you have to know the next one. And so, you know, it's just, it was the best solution we could come up with. And this probably helps in cases where someone attacks a company, they get access to the to a storage system, they start deleting backups or what have you, right? It sort of gives you that extra layer of protection. Yeah. Well, the I've seen ransomware, rep, you know, we think of ransomware as being on the order of the viruses we've dealt with. And the ransomware reports I see are much more frequently... And this ransomware opened a door and then someone physically hacked for a (laughs) long period of time. Right. And they took over some workstation eventually that some administrator logged into and they have an administrator password. And, you know, if if we're just worried about, (laughs) if we're just worried about the script kitties, you know, I can protect against the script kitties in building my backup infrastructure and architecture and those permissions. Um, But we're talking about more sophisticated attacks Mm -hmm. than that. And frankly, you know, we talk about it as ransomware, but it's also rogue administrator protection, right? That it's also just the, the guy who is disgruntled and decides on his way out the door, he's going to make life for his employer you're protected against that too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes rogue administrator is a true rogue administrator, meaning it's a it's someone masquerading as an administrator as well. Right. Uh, that hacker that you talked about. So let me let let me ask, you know, what you know, call it a difficult question, call it whatever you want to call it. But when I hear about, you know, boxes that where you're not supposed to be able to delete data, but then there is this other way where you can delete data. I, I immediately ask, you know, I, I, I have to ask the question, well, doesn't that sort of suggest that there is a, you know, this is, I'm, I'm assuming this is a Unix based like OS and that there's, that there is a root account. It, it we, we run in containers under Linux. Yeah. So there is an account, there is a, you know, a root account. And that if someone did some sort of, you know, just the right attack against that box. And again, you know, you've already mentioned that there is, that these are sophisticated attacks. If someone got, did a privilege escalation attack against the the core OS, and now they've gained access to a privileged, you know, account, if, couldn't they then if do If someone they has... Want? administrative access to the management network mm-hmm. because the ports that face users as storage ports can't be logged into. Right. Okay. They're, cause they're back. Cause they're backend. Right. Right. So if you want to, if you want to log into Linux as root on one of our appliances, then you need. Mm-hmm. Then the management network has to be set, has to be compromised, and now we start saying, "Are you looking for protection against destruction?" Because if your data center is compromised, everything can be destroyed. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the level of attack that we're we're concerned about. We're, you know, we're not talking about, you know, and someone 
walked into the data center because we hadn't disabled their key card and left 20 pounds of thermite in the middle of the floor. Who would do such a thing? Um, I've done that on video, but you know, I was being paid. Right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, it is a vulnerability, but it, it's kind of the generalist of vulnerabilities you're pointing out. That if I have sufficient right. access, I can destroy anything. Right. The um, but it sounds like you have protected from the rogue administrator, the stupid administrator, <laughs> right? And um, and someone gaining access to those. Yeah. But let me let me just ask you to clarify something from your previous answer. When you said that means the management network has been compromised, what do you mean by that? Well, so you manage the system through different ethernet ports than right. you access the system. And so to your, if there's a vulnerability where a user could log into the appliance as the Linux root user, Mm-hmm. Um, well, that Linux root user can only log in on the management physical Ethernet port on the appliance, not on the 100 gigabit NVMe over fabric port. Gotcha. So, okay. so network security should keep that from being an Internet connected network and available to attack. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Um, I had a question. Ahead, <laughs> So, Howard, before we dive more into the data protection side, one thing that was curious to me was you mentioned that uh, Vast supports file and object. Could you talk about some of the use cases that you see your customers using Vast data? And then I think maybe some of the protection stuff will probably come alongside that. Sure. Well, so, you know, we have the majority of our customers use us for primary storage, Um, you know, and that includes... You know, one of the biggest travel sites who uses us for their big data analytics and are using the S3 Presto connectors to store all of their <clears throat> um, analytic data on us so that we're much faster than a disk-based object store, obviously, and they can do that processing faster. Um, we have a lot of hedge funds who do time series analysis of trade data against large databases to try and predict the market. Um, we have a lot of life sciences customers who are doing things like um, molecular modeling and uh, cryo electron microscopy, where you know one microscope generates many terabytes of data a day because of very high resolution images. Um, and and you know we have a major. Um, motion picture studio makes movies. <laughs> so, and so it looks like they are using both sort of the file and the object interfaces. Yes. For a lot of these use cases. So specifically around data protection and backup, a lot of times you hear vendors, customers say object store doesn't need to be backed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> this, th- th- this is just a, a subject that <laughs> personally I find myself on the fence about that part of me goes, you know, I've built a huge amount of resiliency into this single system and for durability, if you know, for, for availability, I may need to have it in another location, but for durability, assuming that the whole data center doesn't, end up being a smoking hole in the ground. Um, I could get away without backing this up. I am on, I, I remain <laughs> firmly on the fence there. Um, but Meaning assuming, n- assuming you have the second copy somewhere, right. You're going to, right. It, I may decide that it's, it is data that if the whole data center goes away, I don't need. Okay. Uh, yeah. Agreed. If, if, yeah, if we have that data, I would, I would, I, I would argue, why did we make it in the first place? But, that, you know, the risk, the risk of that is the risk of that is small enough that I'm going to go, you know, once every thousand years, this is going to cost me a million dollars, but it's going to cost me a million dollars a year to protect. So I'm going to take that risk. 
Okay. Um, okay. So, so such, I, I, I will agree that su- such data classes exist. I don't run into them much, but I will yeah. agree that. Yeah. For that. And, you know, um, and, and then, and then we get to the, you know, okay. So this is the object store that mm-hmm. does uh, deep uh, dispersal coding. And I have, you know, three locations and I can lose one. It's like, do I need to back that up? Well, that starts getting really close to, well, now I need to back it up because there could be a bug in the software that loses my data. Mm. Because that's the only thing that could cause that. You know, it's kind of like I'm protected against one of my three data centers being a smoking hole. What? Um, And I could, you know, again, it's kind of like I could see you going, I want to be safe. And I could see you going, it's not worth it. Um, Right. Now for us, most of our users use this for primary storage. And so, you know, for some of like that big data analytics data, they may not back it up because it's regeneratable. It's not actually in the form it's in on the object store, but it's extracts from other things and they can run the ETL again and it yeah. would be really annoying, but it is replaceable. Yeah. Um, mm. And then we... You know, and then for other use cases, you know, this is primary data. I got to protect it. Um, and so we can do snapshots to an S3 compatible object store and back ourselves up that way. Um, or you can back us up, you know, the usual ways. And could you, could you use, you know, one of the like ones that are like Glacier Deep Archive where... I hope I don't ever have to use this. I know it's going to cost me a crap ton of money, but it'll save me a lot of money in the in the meantime. Can you use that kind of storage? Um, the the res- reading data out of that kind of storage requires a few manual steps. If you just use S3 standard, um, then data in those snapshots is available in a dot remote folder, like the dot snapshots folder in the file system. Mm-hmm. So users can do mm-hmm. self-service restore, but that require, but to this, that feature means the object has to be immediately readable. So, and so if you, if it went to Glacier, then, then you, you know, it would be like uh, your net backup, this backup isn't in the catalog anymore. So I got to put those files someplace where I can catalog it and then I got to catalog it and then I can restore it. So if you really so think possible, you're never going to need it. It doesn't sound like it's very, you know, well, it's the smoking hole copy, right? It, it, it is, it is annoying, but if it's just, but if you're protecting against the smoking hole, then you know, you may be willing to put up with the annoyance. I'm pretty sure we've said smoking hole more times than we've ever said on this podcast, (laughs) just for the record. Just saying. Well, Um, you know. It's getting a lot of play today. I I spent way too long as a disaster recovery planner. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So so the majority of your customers use you for primary storage, but clearly you're trying to expand your TAM. Well, uh, you know, we, and, we deliver right. all flash at a substantially lower price than anybody else does. You know, we start with using the cheapest QLC flash. We have a file system designed to treat that flash properly. So we never do small writes that would consume a lot of write amplification. We do very wide erasure code stripes. So we've got under 3% overhead. And then we do guaranteed better data reduction than anybody else in the business. Um, And so that combination means that on an effective byte basis from whatever backup data mover you're planning on using, we're going to be cheaper than a data domain. When you start saying that it's you have more than a petabyte of data and you need multiple data domains and each one of those is going to be a separate deduplication realm, then the gap starts to grow substantially. So so for these very large customers who have five or 10 or 20 petabytes of data across a bunch of data domains, simply the fact that we're one reduction realm 
makes the makes us much more efficient than that can be. And it's one system to manage. It's one namespace. It's one 20 petabytes or 50 petabyte system. Hmm. So you're saying, so let me just make sure I understood what you said there correctly. You're saying on a, regardless of the size of the system, you should be price competitive with a data domain, but then the bigger you get. I haven't done anything under about 500, any pricing experiments under about 500 terabytes. Uh, Okay. Because we're interested in the large end of the business, but yes. Right, right. That is interesting though, to sort of, jump into that end of the business right and you you know you you had another you know there was another large all flash competitor that's doing very well but they have a very different architecture right They're referring of course to the orange company um and they have a very yeah, different architecture than you um well you know if you're talking about flash blade mm-hmm. that's really a, a shared nothing architecture it's mm-hmm. instead of being pizza box servers, they're blade servers. And mm-hmm. each blade has flash modules built in. Um, and they, you know, they don't scale nearly as large. So it, so it sounds like you, you just took, you've built an architecture based on several new pieces of technology that simply weren't available, say five years ago. Yeah, we 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 are the the storage system designed from a clean slate around the 2016 toolbox. So QLC Flash, right? SCM, NVMe over Fabrics, and other people shoehorn one or two of those technologies into an existing architecture. But we built the whole architecture around having those technologies that, you know, putting all of the metadata in SCM with no cache meant it had to be in SCM. And it meant the connection between the compute server and that SCM had to be fast enough that we weren't going, you know, if we cached this, it would be a lot faster. So that meant it had to be NVMe over fabrics. And then the QLC flash gives us the cost, but it, it, it Mm. really is, you know, if you look at any storage system, it's by definition built with the parts that the industry is making when they sat down to design it. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And, and so, you know, you see that when x86 processor, you know, when Nehalem came along, and the memory bandwidth and the number of PCI e-lanes on processors got big enough. All of a sudden, we stopped seeing FPGAs and ASICs in storage systems. We started seeing software-defined storage because what was available for the designers changed. And NVMe over Fabrics has been used by most of the storage vendors for that last mile connection going, well, it's going to be faster than Fiber Channel or iSCSI for the user machine to access the storage. But it hasn't been as effectively used for the server that is the logical controller to access the media on the back end. And the way we use it, we broke the traditional limitation that a drive had to be owned by one or two (laughs) controllers. Because a drive, you know, a SAS drive or an NVMe drive has one or two ports. Well, Mm. we connect that NVMe SSD to what we call a fabric module, which is an NVMe over fabrics router. And in fact, in the new box, it's going to be a pair of NVIDIA Bluefield cards. And the Bluefield card routes NVMe over Fabrics requests from the Ethernet network to the SSDs and routes the responses back, but that's all it does. We don't need x86 servers in the enclosure. We can do it on the ARMs and the offloads in the Bluefield. And these are the DPUs, correct, Howard? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the Bluefield is is the DPU. It's yeah. um, 
the NVIDIA Mellanox yep. version of that. And so it has an ARM, you know, it has some ARM cores and NVMe over fabrics and RDMA and other built-in yep. offloads in the chip. And so we leverage that to do the routing of requests from the front end servers where everything, all the work gets done to the SSDs and get that clean, fast, more cost-effective channel. So let me go back in time. When you did that, that first presentation that you did to the storage field day folks, yep. did, how, how, did, how did that go over? Um, with with those, it folks. went over pretty well. There was a little um, being from Missouri, and you know we yeah. should show you because you were because you were brand new at that point, right? We were brand we were brand new, um, right? And now we're going okay. Look, we've sold a couple of exabytes of storage. Now at this, you know, we we our go to market model is a little different. We sell software. We arrange for customers to buy the pre-approved hardware at cost, um, and the software licenses that is, are. That is a little interesting. And the software licenses are transferable, so you license a petabyte of software, mm-hmm. and you upgrade the hardware when you feel like you want to upgrade the hardware because you want the denser, faster one that is always coming. But we'll write the support contract for 10 years for any appliance from install date. So that's very different. <laughs> well, a typical yeah. vendor, oh. you would buy an appliance, it would come with mm-hmm. an OEM software license. They would write mm-hmm. five years of support. And in year six, they would encourage you very strongly to rebuy. Yep. Um, and then when you rebuy, right. you have to buy another appliance. And the software license isn't transferable. So you have to buy another software license. Yeah. So with so us, the- you go to Av- yeah, your VAR. Yeah, you go to a VAR. 100% channel, you go to a VAR. Your VAR goes to Avnet. It says, I want this hardware for Vast. Now, $1.2 million average selling price. One of our sales guys is involved. We're writing, you know, a high touch sale it's not you know somebody went on a website someplace <laughs> um you know but essentially the var <laughs> essentially the var writes two po's one to avnet for the hardware and one to us for the actually he writes one po to avnet avnet cuts us a po for the software and 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 that's a capacity subscription so if you bought a 675 terabyte raw enclosure and an appliance that's got four servers that provide the front end which is our usual entry point you could license 100 terabytes for a year multiples of 100 terabytes for multiples of a year and so that i think that addresses the question that I had because I, I listened to the Chris Evans podcast that you guys did. Um, yeah. And there was this talk of the 10 year thing. And, and again, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just acknowledge that I live in a SAS world where we preach against, you know, large capacity licensing and capital right. purchases and all of that stuff. Right. So when I heard 10 year, purchase i was like what i gotta i gotta decide now how much i need for 10 years but that doesn't sound like what you're talking about no 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 you you buy the hardware right we will write a support contract and software license one agreement for that hardware Mm -hmm. for up to 10 years from install date at the same rate So if you want to keep it for 10 years, you keep it for 10 years. Even so, if you bought so I could I a could buy year... a smaller one and then add capacity. Oh yeah. Our ARR is 3. Lots of people buy small and add capacity. 
Right. We have 300% okay. ARR. Sorry, I think you meant NRR, right? Yeah. Thanks for explaining. Yeah. Yeah. NRR. Yeah. NRR. You said yeah. ARR. That's why you oh, had me confused there for a minute. <clears throat> um, I was like, yeah. annual recurring revenue of three. Three what? <laughs> uh, so you meant net retention yeah. rate. You're saying, yeah. So you're saying 300% your customers start out at X and they end up with 3X uh, yeah. very regularly. Okay. And, and, you and know, the way and you your system that. works, it just grows as they need it to grow. Yeah. And you can do it in the hardware, you know, so if you want to start really small, then you can buy hardware and partially license it. Oh, interesting. Because so I, you can buy, you can buy a 600 terabyte box and a hundred terabyte software license. And the 600 terabyte box you bought at what would be our cost if we were still selling hardware. Right, we negotiate the cost with the with Intel and Kiaxia and those vendors. Oh, so you used to sell hardware, and then you why? sort of we started off in appliance. Okay. Um, why? Why would I do that? Is that just like an ease of large capital purchase thing? Yeah. Meaning, why would I you buy know, a had, bigger box? We had a university. We had a university had this much money in this year's budget. Oh, okay. We won't put more than 100 terabytes on it before the next budget comes around. When we renew, we'll renew it as a 400 terabyte license. And I think this is where at the beginning you said, Howard, that you're looking at releasing a smaller unit. Right. Yeah. So the new the new box is 1U. It uses the ESSF1L, the ruler form factor SSDs. So we can we have 22 15 terabyte SSDs for 338 raw, about 300 usable. Um, and that's half the physical size, half the capacity, because what we have now, it holds 56 SSDs and to you. Gotcha. Um, but the, you know, the new one is, goes from, you know, the fabric modules, those NVMe routers today, mm -hmm. each one has to be a dual Xeon. So we have enough PCIe lanes. Yeah. <laughs> and the processors don't do hardly anything. Yeah. So there's just like, well, there's costs there we don't need if the Bluefield thing. Yeah. That's exciting. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So let's let's focus uh, for a little bit on. Uh, I mean, the only reason I have historically been when when I historically heard the idea of using Flash for backup, I'm like, that sounds ridiculous because for the same, for cost reasons, too yeah. expensive. Um, I'm hearing you that, um, so I would, I would put it this way, that, that in, in this upcoming world, in this current world, um, you know, in a world where we have large nation states invading other nation states and then large ransomware, you know, organizations in those countries we had this this was our last you know they're they're talking about so we're talking about being retaliated against because of this other country it's it's crazy right so you have this right. you have this um this need more than ever before for large recoveries and i i do believe strongly that there's really only one of two ways to be really successful in any sort of ransomware situation. And, and and it's basically about fighting the laws of physics. Either you have to have already restored it. So you already have a, a hot standby ready to go to switch over to, um, or you're doing live mount directly from your backup. And live mount directly from your backup is only gonna happen if you either aren't deduplicating uh, like like the way data domain does, or right. you have flash, as far as and, I can tell, and even now, if you're not, even if you're not deduplicating, mm -hmm. when you start talking about big hard drives, the I/O mm -hmm. density just isn't there. Yeah, you know, it's better. Some somewhere between you and data domain, I would put Exagrid, right? Because Exagrid has that front end that's not deduplicated. Now there. They're they're nowhere near the size of you, right? No, and they have some 
and they have some flash cache. And, you know, if you look at, you know, the, the guys who do integrated appliances where the software and the target are one thing, those are mm-hmm. typically hybrids. And, mm-hmm. and so they'll do an instant recover for one or two VMs pretty well. Cause there's enough flash for that. Right. But when you start going, I need, you know, the database server behind my ERP instant recovered, or I need all 50 of these VMs instant recovered, then it's, you know, then you just, then you just don't have enough flash and you're going to get hard drive performance. Um, right. And so what it know. sounds like you've replaced the hard drives with QLC. Right. Help me because I don't live in this world. QLC from a cost perspective versus regular. Well, it's, it's not just QLC. So QLC means quad level cell holds four bits per cell. The more, the more bits you hold, the closer the voltage levels that represent the differences are. And the more sensitive the cells become to a few electrons escaping. If you have SLC, it's like a light switch. It's on or off. Right. doesn't matter if a few electrons escape. You can still tell whether it's on or off. QLC, you got 16 values. The difference between value 13 and value 14 might only be a handful of electrons. So QLC has less endurance because every time you erase it, the insulating layers wear down a little and a few more electrons have opportunities to escape. Um, And it's slower to write because you have to adjust the voltage level just right to be one of those 16 voltage levels. And that takes a little bit longer. Now the slower to write, we don't really care about because we acknowledge the writes while it's still in the SCM. So as long as we are flushing data out of the SCM in bandwidth terms fast enough, latency is unimportant. And the endurance, we specifically do a lot of things in our software to manage endurance. So we write very large writes so that the Mm. SSD doesn't have to garbage collect internally to accommodate small writes. We erase very large erases so that we delete all of the data in an erase block in the flash so that the SSD doesn't have to garbage collect internally. And that means not only can we use QLC, but we can use dirt cheap QLC SSDs that don't have a DRAM buffer in them to protect the QLC from where. And well, if you have a DRAM buffer, then you can aggregate multiple small writes, but yeah, but now if power fails, it's DRAM, you lose the data. So you need a power fail protection circuit and you need <laughs> big capacitors to power the power fail protection circuit. Complexity is so cost. Can, so that you can dump the DRAM into flash <laughs> and right. And it all starts to add up. So the SSD right. we buy, the other customers are hyperscalers. They put them in servers. They only need one port. They're writing long tail data. It's not like they're overwriting this stuff all the time. It's just too many people are looking at that drunken fat frat boy picture on Facebook <laughs> for it to be on disk. So it's on flash. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're leveraging all of that to keep mm-hmm. so that we can literally use that lowest cost flash and do the 10 year support. Cause the 10 year support includes if the SSD wears out, we'll replace it. Because normally QLC isn't rated for that long, I believe, right? SLC is what, five years? SLC is the very high endurance flash. The the typical flash that you see for volume use today is TLC, triple level cell. So it's three bits instead of four bits. So QLC is 30% cheaper to make because it holds more bits per cell. Um, And... QLC has substantially less endurance. So when you start looking at enterprise SSDs on Newegg, <laughs> the the point one drive write per day SSD is slightly better than the ones we use. And the three drive write per day SSD, you notice, has less capacity 
because it's got the same amount of flash. Yeah, it's just more over provisioned yeah. so they can wear level across more of it. And the three drive rate per day SSD probably has a DRAM cache and all the stuff to protect it. Yeah. Um, and that's what most enterprise storage systems need because how they put the data in the drive dates back to when it was a disk drive yep. and you were trying to keep data logically adjacent, not try right. and manage the right pool inside the drive. Yep. The requirements were different. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So again, going back to the fact that you built this from the scratch with that, with that toolbox from 2016 and you were like, we need to, we need to manage right leveling. Right? And look, our, to- our founder, Renan Halleck, was the chief engineer at Extreme IO. Yep. And when he got tired of working for Michael Dell, <laughs> he got to talk to Extreme IO customers and find out what they wanted. And nobody said, we want faster. Extreme IO was already all flash. They were still adjusting to all flash. Um, and it was plenty fast. But everybody wanted to be able to use that all flash for more things. And so our whole system is designed to provide very high random read performance across large amounts of flash at an affordable price. Got it. And so our, you know, our performance asymmetry is exactly the opposite of data domains. <laughs> Wait, explain what you just said. Our performance asymmetry is exactly the opposite of data domains. They don't publish restore speeds anymore. Haven't for years. Mm-hmm. We publish read speeds and write speeds. And reads are about eight times faster than writes. But that doesn't mean your writes are slow either. Just for clarification. No, 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 no. <laughs> our, our smallest system does five gigabytes per second of writes. You know, we're, <laughs> you know you, your storage system probably doesn't keep up with that. But that's the slow. But what that means is if you scale a system the traditional way and you say, I need to move this many terabytes over this many hours. So I'm going to scale it by write performance. Your backups are going to be much faster than your restores. Excuse me. Your Hmm. restores are going to be much faster than your your writes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we read much faster than we write. And so if you size for backup speed, your restore speed is going to be <laughs> awfully nice. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, consider me impressed, Howard. Um, you <laughs> know, I, to do, by the way, Howard. I, I've known Curtis I, a long I mean, time. I've impressed him once. <laughs> so this is, makes twice. I'm really, I'm happy with that. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're clearly, you know, you, you've been in the business a long time. You've seen those companies that have really interesting technology and nobody's buying anything. You're not that. You, yeah. you clearly have the really interesting technology, but you're also actually selling it, right? I decided it was time to get a job. Mm-hmm. And I talked to the folks at Vast who are still in stealth. And I said to myself, look, Howard, you're a storyteller. And this is a really good story. And it doesn't matter whether it succeeds or not you're going to have a good story to tell. And lo and behold, it's one of those cases where it was a good story and the market requirement fit. And you don't, you don't have to create the need. We are selling, you know, we have for the past couple of years done comparisons, all the storage companies that have gone public going, yeah, we're growing faster than all of them put together. All right. Well, Howard, um, thanks a lot for coming on. We might have to have you back because I, I know that I know we've we've really just begun to scratch the surface. And um, but uh, sounds like sounds like you got a good gig over there. I'm glad uh, both of us could be employed. Uh, <laughs> it, do well for the people who've known us a long time. It really must be shocking. <laughs> you know, you and I both <laughs> the same job, multiple years, but. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm still having fun at Vast, and you know, there's there's lots of interesting stuff still to come. You know, having taken yeah. a fresh eye to the market, 
we got all sorts of good stuff coming. Cool. All right. Well, I wish you the best. And uh, thanks, Persona. Uh, this is one of those cases where your background was very helpful, I think. Oh, <laughs> I try. I you, try. You know, you know what I mean? You yeah. know what I mean? Your, your background in more, obviously more than me in storage systems. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Having spent a bunch of time building storage arrays, <laughs> it helps. <laughs> it's not nearly as much fun as people think it is. No. Still interesting problems, though. And yeah. Thank you, Howard, for sharing some of the details and indulging in my questions. So, Oh, no problem. <laughs> All right. And uh, thanks to our listeners. You're why we do this every week. And uh, make sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all. Good.